This is Health Dose, a conversational podcast that focuses on issues that affect your health. I'm Jerry O'Donnell. Today, we're going to talk about hip replacement surgery, specifically the anterior approach to hip replacement surgery. Our guest today is orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Ben Main. And Health Dose asked Dr. Main, how common is hip pain and what usually causes it? Well, hip pain is really common. And I guess, depending on the age of the patient, the, the diagnosis is different. I mean, younger people, it's usually something related to muscles or tendons. Uh, the older people get, the more likely they are to have some arthritis. It, a lot of it depends on the location of the pain. And usually if somebody has an arthritic hip and they're going to need a hip replacement, much of the pain is in the front of the hip or in the groin area. Usually if the pain's around the back, then it would be more likely to be related to like nerve irritation or something going on in the lumbar spine. If the pain's over on the side of the hip, it could be bursitis. Most of the time, if somebody has an arthritic hip and they need a replacement, they're going to have pain in the groin area. As an orthopedic surgeon, how do you determine which of those things are in play, whether it be a nerve-related problem or a muscle or soft tissue kind of problem or the actual joint? Well, the physical exam is really important. I will rotate the hip. And usually if somebody has a problem with the hip joint itself, the hip will be irritable and painful when I rotate it. If I can move the hip all around and I don't reproduce any pain, then they probably don't have a problem with the joint itself. Again, if the pain's around the back, if it's in their rear end and going down their leg or something, that's not likely to be related to the hip joint. And then the other thing, obviously, we'll get x-rays. And I can't really diagnose an arthritic hip without an x-ray. So we almost always will get an x-ray. And uh, if that's abnormal, that helps with the diagnosis as well. When it comes to an arthritic hip, what are you looking for in that x-ray that indicates that you need to replace the hip? Well, in a normal hip, there's a typically a nice space between the ball and the socket on the x-ray, which is cartilage. And in an arthritic hip, the cartilage wears away and that space between the ball and socket will decrease. And when it's bad, there'll be no space left at all. It'll be completely bone on bone. The x-ray is very important. Sometimes we'll also see bone spurs. You'll see extra bone that the body will lay down at the edges of the hip joint. The body has a mechanism to uh, actually lay down bone in areas that are being overloaded. And so you'll see bone spurs or what we call osteophytes. You can also see little bone cysts and changes in the appearance of the bone on both the ball and the socket. What's the reason for that extra bone growth? Is it an attempt by the body to lock that bone in place? Well, it's actually to kind of increase the surface area. You lay down extra bone and these osteophytes form in areas that are being overloaded. It's just a way to kind of increase the surface area over which the forces are applied. Usually the spurs are just more of an indication that there's something going on as opposed to the spurs themselves being the problem. So if you just try to take off the bone spurs, that's not necessarily going to fix anything when the problem is that the cartilage is gone. A lot of people think that arthritis is something that builds up inside the joint and that we can go in and scrape it out of there. <laughs> People have that misconception, whereas arthritis really is loss of the cartilage, kind of like the tread on your tires wearing down. And once the cartilage is gone, it's gone, and there's no way to put it back in there. And when that's the case, then that's when we talk about replacing a joint. Before we rush right into a hip replacement surgery, are there things that you're doing with your patients to delay that surgery or to get them out of pain that don't involve surgery? Well, we usually start with some sort of rehabilitation. People that have arthritic joints will get some weakness and some stiffness. And if people get weaker and stiffer, they tend to get worse. So if you can improve the strength and improve the flexibility, then people will often tolerate the arthritic joint longer. Anti-inflammatory medicine is helpful. If people are overweight, weight loss can be helpful. We'll sometimes do an injection. You can put some steroid in the hip joint. 
I have to do that with an x-ray machine. We do that at the surgery center, but you can put some steroid in the joint and that can give people some pain relief. That can also be helpful diagnostically. If I inject the hip with cortisone and the pain goes away, then that helps tell us for sure that it's coming from the hip joint. And if all those things fail and people just keep getting worse and worse, then we talk about surgery. So if I'm going to need the hip replacement eventually, what's the reason for putting that surgery off? Yeah, often that's the case. The other thing is these days, all the insurance carriers are happy to deny surgery. And one of the things that they insist on is that we send people to physical therapy first. We talk to them about weight loss. We have them try anti-inflammatory medicine. And if we don't do those things, even if somebody has a horrible x-ray, they often won't approve the surgery anyway. So uh, some of it is an insurance requirement. It is nice to try to put off surgery as long as possible. Uh, The older somebody is when they have surgery, the more likely it is to last the rest of their life. So we try to put it off if we can, but if the x-ray looks awful and somebody's miserable and they just aren't responding to anything, then surgery is certainly a reasonable option. What's the tipping point for you as a surgeon? When do you know it's time to do that hip replacement? Usually it relates to patient symptoms more than anything. If somebody gets to the point where their activities are severely limited and nothing else is helping, that's when we'll do it. I, you know, Just because somebody has an, an awful looking x-ray doesn't mean that they need surgery if their symptoms aren't bad. And there are some times where the x-ray doesn't look as bad as it often does, but the symptoms are bad enough that we'll proceed with surgery. So it's a combination of x-ray and, and symptoms. Is it fair to say that everybody deals with pain differently and that every patient is different? Yeah, very much so. And oftentimes the x-ray doesn't directly correlate with the magnitude of the misery. And sometimes the x-ray looks awful and people are doing fine. And sometimes the x-ray is kind of more moderate and the symptoms are horrible. So you have to kind of put all of that into perspective. Is it fair to say that as a surgeon, it's your job to ascertain how much functionality may have been lost by the patient and use that as a way to determine what you need to do? Yeah, that's important. And if somebody doesn't have any functional deficits, I mean, they're able to do all of their normal activities and they probably don't need surgery yet. 50 years ago, hip replacement surgery may have meant like six, eight weeks of bed rest, a major surgery. Things have come a long way in the last few decades. Very much so. These are done often as an outpatient. Patients will go home the same day. And if they don't go home the same day, they'll often spend one night. It wasn't long ago that we would keep everybody in the hospital for three days after surgery. And that has been decreasing quite a bit over the past few years. Again, it's, it's really unusual that somebody spends more than one night in the hospital any longer. What's the latest and greatest technique for hip replacement surgery? In my perspective, the anterior approach has been a kind of a game changer. I've been doing that for about eight years now. It's a less invasive approach. I was trained to go in from the side. It's called an anterolateral approach. And to do the surgery that way, you have to go through the fascia, which is a thick layer And that I think is just more painful to have to go through that. Plus you have to take down part of the abductor tendon and repair that on the way out. And when we do an approach from the front, we go in between a couple of muscles. You don't really cut through any tendons. I can do it through a smaller incision and it usually is less painful and it often allows the faster recovery. The anterior approach or approaching it from the front is kind of counterintuitive to me because I consider my hip to be on my side. What are the advantages of doing it in an anterior approach? Well, again, uh, to get in from the front, uh, you basically make a skin incision and then you divide the interval between two muscles. So you don't really cut any muscle or tendon. And then you're right down on the hip joint. It's a smaller incision. You have to go through a lot less to get to the joint. And, you know, you can approach the hip from the front, from the side or from the back. 
And I think there are more people doing a posterior approach in this country than any other approach. For whatever reason, where I was trained at Beaumont Hospital, there were more people doing this anterolateral approach. And that's how I did this surgery up until about eight years ago. And I found out about the anterior approach and I thought it was interesting. It always sort of bothered me to have to go through the abductor tendon to get into the joint. And so the thought of doing it from the front was intriguing. I went and did some, well, lots of training to learn how to do it. And it's been several years now. I've done a few hundred of them. And it's not unusual for people to really shorten the amount of time that they need to use a walker. Their gait pattern comes back to normal a lot sooner. That's not universal. I mean, some people still have a fair amount of pain and some people take a long time to get better no matter what we do. But there's a percentage of the time where people will come in at a week postoperatively, you know, so sometimes it can be dramatic how fast people get better. How much smaller is the incision with this anterior approach as opposed to traditional methods? Well, probably the most important thing with respect to how big the incision is, is how big the patient is. And if somebody is heavier and there's a lot of soft tissue to go through, then you need a bigger incision just to be able to see what you're doing. So I can do a much smaller incision on a skinny person than somebody who's heavier. It's often about half the length of the surgery that we do from the side. It's often not as far down to get to the joint. It's often about half the length. Are there some patients who are better candidates for this anterior approach than others? Yeah, it's it's difficult to do an anterior. Well, it's difficult to do any approach on somebody who is really heavy, but it's hard to for me to do an anterior approach on somebody who's significantly overweight, like a BMI over 40 or something. It's difficult to do on somebody who has a really large belly that kind of overhangs the front of their hip. And then I also worry about the incision because it's sometimes hard to keep that area dry and keep that area clean if somebody has a really big abdomen. It's difficult to do on somebody who is really stiff if the hip joint is horribly stiff or if they lay down on their back and they have a flexion contracture at the hip, meaning that their thigh doesn't touch the table when they're laying on their back where the hip is contracted up. And that can happen if somebody's been favoring the hip a long time. It can be very difficult to do. It's hard for me to do on somebody who has a really enormous muscular thigh. There are also certain x-ray features that make it difficult, but uh, I probably do 70% of them that way these days. So most people are candidates, but there are some where it's just much harder to do that way. And I just, I recommend that we do it the other way, if that's the case. And the technique that you opt for, is it just a mechanical thing, the size of the body, the size of the thigh? Well, the difficult part of doing an anterior hip replacement is to get access to the femur. We have to put a stem down the shaft of the femur bone and you have to bring the femur up anteriorly. And it's really hard to mobilize the femur anteriorly if you have any of those issues going on. If if somebody's really heavy and really large, it's just hard to work around all of that soft tissue from the front. It's way easier to put somebody up on their side and approach the hip that way. And if somebody is horribly stiff, it can just be really hard to mobilize the femur. And then that just, that turns what should be a simple operation into one that's very difficult. So walk me through recovery post-surgery with your typical patient. What are we going to see in the first week and in the subsequent weeks following that? Well, everybody's going to have some discomfort, obviously, from the surgery. Although when we do an anterior approach, they usually hurt less. They typically take less pain medicine, although most people do need to take some sort of narcotic pain medicine for a few days. Sometimes that can be one day. Sometimes it's three weeks. I mean, everybody's different, but people are up the day of surgery walking with a walker. And then just as you start to feel better, you can gradually progress from a walker to a cane. I typically see people back about a week postoperatively. 
And it's not unusual for people that had an anterior approach to be walking with a cane, although there is definitely a percentage of people that are still on a walker. I usually see people back six weeks after that, and most people are no longer using any sort of assistive device. And you can basically just increase your activity level within the limits of comfort, typically. As you start to feel better, you can start to do more. We also don't tend to restrict people as much when we do an anterior approach. When you do a posterior approach, there's usually a recommendation to avoid flexion of the hip beyond about 90 degrees for a while. And I don't really put that restriction on people when we do an anterior approach. And you just gradually increase your activity level over the first uh, few weeks after the surgery. I usually tell people after any sort of a total joint that it's going to be 10 to 12 weeks before you're doing most things, like uh, people that like to play golf and things like that. It's usually three months, although sometimes people can get better a little quicker than that. And sometimes it takes longer. A lot of it depends on what shape somebody's in before the surgery too, how much they need to recover before they get back to quote unquote normal. So the anterior approach gets them back to function, gets them back to doing what they want to do quicker? Usually, yes. Sometimes it's twice as fast. If you look at people at the end of a year, there really isn't any difference with which approach is used. But if you look at people early on, the anterior approach patients usually will progress faster. They tend to have less pain and they tend to get back to normal gait pattern sooner than if we do it the other way. And today, is that hip replacement ceramic? Is it steel? Is it a combination? Most of the hip prostheses on the market today are titanium. So the socket is made out of titanium and the femoral stem is made out of titanium. And the socket, the liner for the socket is uh, a specialized plastic, although sometimes it's a ceramic. The total hip that I use is uh, from the Smith and Nephew company. And the ball is made of what's called oxinium, which is their proprietary product. It is a metal ball with an oxidized zirconium coating on it. So it's hard like a metal, but smooth like a ceramic. And that's been on the market for a while. I am a firm believer in that. Ceramics can be brittle. If somebody's in a car accident or they have some horrible injury that the ceramic can shatter, which can be a very difficult thing to remedy. And the oxinium, since it's hard like a metal, is not going to do that. So all the younger patients will get this oxinium ball that I do. So what's the life expectancy of my hip replacement? Well, we'd like to think we could get 20 plus years out of any joint replacement these days. The plastic is way better than it used to be. 20 plus years is uh, what we're expecting, what we're hoping for. When I put a total hip in anybody, I'm, expect, I'm, I'm not expecting, but I'm hoping it'll last them the rest of their life. I haven't seen anybody wear out their plastic. I've seen things loosen up over time. I've seen people have an injury or an accident where they knock something loose and need to be redone. Any total hip, there's a risk of instability. Total hips can dislocate. And I've seen people that have needed to be revised for that. So yes, definitely seen people that have needed to have a second surgery, but I haven't seen anybody that I've done an anterior approach on that has needed to be revised because they've worn something out or the plastic has failed or something like that. How much functionality can I expect to have returned to my life? I mean, are you going to get me back on the golf course? Yeah. I mean, I would expect people to have pretty normal function after a successful total hip. I mean, I recommend lower impact activities for people, but people play golf, people play doubles tennis, people downhill ski, ride horses, hunting, fishing, all of that kind of stuff. That's what we would expect you to be able to return to whatever activity you want to do within reason. I mean, I don't think it's a good idea to be a marathon runner or do uh, you know, really risky high impact activity, but what you would consider normal activity for somebody in the age group that typically has a hip replacement should be okay for most people. That is orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Ben Main.
As always, if you have health concerns, the best place to start is your primary care provider. If you need help finding a primary care provider, go to midmichigan.org doctors. And for more information about orthopedic services available at MidMichigan Health, go to midmichigan.org ortho. I'm Jerry O'Donnell. Thank you so much for listening. Check back again soon for another episode of Health Dose.